0: Welcome to the Cycling Science Podcast, where we just love to chat about the latest science in cycling. Hello, and welcome to the first edition of the Cycling Science Podcast. Uh, I'm uh, Professor Richard Davison, your host, and I have uh, two uh, co-hosts who I'm going to introduce. First of all, uh, Gerrit Flores-James. Oh Hi there, uh, I'm Professor Guy Florida-James from Edinburgh-Napier University, um, thanks for inviting me Richard. And uh, Leslie Ingram.
1: Hi everyone, um, I'm Leslie Ingram and I'm an Associate Lecturer at Edinburgh-Napier University. Um, good to be speaking to you all.
0: And uh, I suppose I should say what I do, uh, I'm a Professor at uh, University of Western Scotland, Professor in Exercise Physiology. Um, Okay, so since this is our first um, Cycling Science podcast, I thought it was really important uh, for our listeners to learn a little bit more about uh, the hosts. Um, So uh, I'm just going to ask uh, my two co-hosts a little bit of their sort of background in terms of cycling and maybe even some of the work that they're doing at the moment. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, with uh, with G and uh, start off nice and easy, G, and ask you, um, you know, what what got you into cycling? Uh it's a good question, Richard. Um, but uh, uh, I
2: moved to Innerleithen in the Scottish Borders, and mountain biking is very prevalent and very. Uh, there's a lot of people who mountain bike uh, within the Scottish Borders. is a growing sport, uh, and I was a mountain runner, hill runner and discovered mountain biking from there. Uh, there's a lot of athlete and a lot of activity around that, that kind of sucked me in, really, and drew me into the the sport, and started working with some of the athletes, the professional athletes, particularly around down downhill mountain biking back in the day, and then moving all the way through to
0: currently working uh, with Endurable Series racers as well. Okay, so um, just go back a little bit in terms of, you know, you said you were a, I'll run you you were quite a good runner, so uh you were was you an Irish champion you know, uh, and running? yeah, I was a handy runner in the day, i suppose uh but volunteer was the
2: was the first uh, international vest I started uh, racing under, and then when my legs got bad, I started doing mountain running, and then when my legs got bad and all the different injuries you would pick up from that, I started mountain biking uh, and then of course, we
0: met you. Uh, and road biking became something that was of an interest as well. And but obviously, again, you know, you were able to transfer some of that—I'll uh, I'll call it—athletic talent to mountain biking because you also have uh, won races uh, on mountain biking as well. Ah, uh, yeah, it's—it um, it really is, as you say, taking the uh, the, the physiology from
2: from one sport transferring what you know and what's uh, useful in that sport and taking it into another sport, working out the demands, using the good stuff from um, uh, mountain running in particular and moving across. There's a lot of um, um, interesting similarities, I suppose. You've got to go up and you've got to go down, particularly in mountain biking, and that's the interesting part. The same thing as mountain running. You've got to go up and you've got to go down. and You've got to try and go down as fast as you can both in both sports and it's trying to work out how you get athletes to that point. With uh, one with running, just it's uh, the legs underneath you, But then uh, mountain bikes is a bit more complicated. There's a bike and it moves, etc. Makes it more difficult, and also then as a scientist it makes it much more interesting and harder to work out what's going on. You've
0: hey, been very modest again, uh, G. Obviously, that uh, I'm trying to get the fact uh, I'm, I'm all right in saying that you were a Irish uh, enduro champion uh, as mm. well. I was.
2: Bet, I should stress, I was Irish yeah. champion in twenty twelve, set out to do that, uh, having raced in a number of the forests back in the day, uh, or in tune. So it was really nice to go back and see that and go and, and race in a different discipline and try and um, achieve the goal that I set out. So that was interesting and fun.
0: Good ultimately I made it. and and of course the you know, I suppose one of the other aspects of some of the work you've done is uh, you know, you've you've been instrumental in helping some young athletes, uh, you know, achieve at, at the highest level as well.
2: Uh, yeah, and I, and again, it's um, what we've got going on and, um, you know, where I live uh, and where I also work at the Mountain Bike Centre of Scotland now, which is uh, hosted by Edinburgh University, but it's in the um, Scottish borders in the Tweed Valley. And we see a number of um, youngsters coming through there, we're seeing even more coming through and it's that whole thing, if you provide decent facilities, in this case, um, fabulous trails, trail network, um, coaching clubs, etc., then you see these youngsters coming through. So all the way back to, I think, I started working 2003, uh, in 2003 in, and with some of the downhill athletes. There really wasn't any programme, there wasn't any information out there for them. And then we started working out, trying to unpick the demands of that sport, and then move forward from that. And I just continued doing that all the way through to currently having... Um, two athletes who are in Dural world series elite athletes, um, Kenny Wenton on Trek world racing and Lewis Buchanan on Abus IBIS, um, IBIS world series team as well.
0: I, I, you know, of course, not not to forget to mention Ruri Yeah, of course, back into the old
2: way, back in the day with Ruri Cunningham when he was um, 2007 world uh, champion, particularly working with uh, Chris Ball, who was one of the was actually the first of the mountain biking, the first cyclist that I, that I worked with, so he is now, um, the, um runs the Enduro World Series which uh, uh, has gone from strength to strength, he's doing a fabulous job there and uh, worked with Chris as an athlete and then helped him and mentored him and worked through him as a coach and then all the way through the Enduro World Series and again he's one of our um, graduates from Edinburgh Napier as well. So there's a strong, I suppose, link in terms of cycling and particularly off-road cycling, that we have through within within Napier, and we're really um, keen to keep keep moving that forward. Okay,
0: uh, going to turn to Leslie now. Um, Leslie, what was your uh, entry into cycling?
1: Well, I guess I'd always cycled from a youngster, but there was nothing anything serious in that. So it was always just going to see my friends or cycling around the woods. And it wasn't until I actually started working at um, Napier University. Um, when I was catapulted into a department of a lot of cyclists, and everyone owned bikes and had different opinions about you know the best bike to get, and and it was a whole new world to me. Um, so when I started, G actually um, organised a trip down to Glenchess, which is only thirty minutes south of Edinburgh. But I'd actually never even heard of Glenchess, so I'd never been mountain biking before. Um, and it was amazing. I just loved it. I fell in love with the sport, I think, on the first day. Um, I was overtaking people who'd been doing it for years and was hooked. And within a year, I was. Um, I'd bought a new bike. I was racing the, cross, the Scottish Cross Country Series. And it was just a continual journey from there. And within three years, I actually managed to make it to the World Cup Series. So it was a, a very fun, uh, great time that I had racing XC. Uh, you too
0: have, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, somewhat transitioned to you know doing a lot of it yourself to helping others um so you know uh, maybe tell us a little bit about some of the Absolutely. athletes you've helped particularly recently
1: yeah um so i guess i've worked with a lot of cross-country athletes in the past and um, and more and more now i've been transitioning more into the ultra endurance world so i've worked with a lot of ultra endurance um, mountain bikers over the, the past couple of years and in two thousand and sixteen, I actually started working with Mark Beaumont when he tried to when he attempted to break the world record of cycling around the world in eighty days, um, in which he managed to achieve in seven to eight days. And um, so that was a really great experience, a really good learning curve, and um, really has fueled my passion for ultra endurance cycling and um, all the different disciplines and how we can help those athletes out as much as possible.
0: Okay, great, uh, and I'm sure we'll come back to. Uh to Mark Bowman and uh, you know uh, some of the experiences uh, with working with Mark, uh, it's a- another point. Um, I suppose I should talk a little bit about myself as well. Um, you should, Richard. <laughs> um, I suppose, again, I've been cycling a long time. I suppose my father introduced me to cycling when I was very young. He was actually a racer. Um, so I think I had my first bike race when I was about, this is on the road at Town Trial, when I was about... Um, Eleven. Uh, it wasn't the best experience because um, uh, you know it was a five mile time trial where I went wrong, at the turn of the roundabout, I missed the exit and uh, I got knocked off with a car at a junction. Uh, luckily I wasn't really hurt but I suppose the most hurtful thing of the whole experience was that I was actually beaten by my brother, uh, my younger brother I should add. Um, so how I actually uh, maintained and stayed in the sport uh, I, I don't really know. But I did, um and you know, I've been a cyclist ever since um and ended up doing uh, sports science at Glasgow University. Um the first cohort um to do physiology and sports science at Glasgow and um, went on to be a cycling coach. Um so I th- I think I got my first qualification in nineteen ninety as a coach and was lucky enough to be able to help the uh, Scottish road squad uh, to the Commonwealth Games uh, in 1994 and I've basically been coaching ever since and, and researching uh, on cycling so um, yeah um, I've been nothing but cycling uh, I suppose since the, the age of 11 so I think you gather from the little roundup here that uh, we're all very passionate about cycling um, we've all got experience of, of riding our bikes and competing and winning the odd race here and there. Um, but I suppose in terms of this podcast in particular, we're all uh, sports scientists uh, who are very keen at looking at the science behind the sport and using that knowledge to try and help uh, riders improve. Hi there and welcome to the section of our podcast which uh, deals with uh, a recent uh, research paper and joining me is uh, Leslie Inger, my co-host. Unfortunately, my other co-host, uh, G is is unwell today so can't uh, join in in this uh, part of the podcast. Um, the paper that we're going to look at today um, comes from a group uh, based at Durham University and it's uh, Called the uh, the low energy availability assessed by a sports specific questionnaire and clinical interview indicative of bone health, endocrine profile, and cycling performance in competitive uh, male cyclists. And the authors are Nicola Key, Gavin Francis, and Karen Hind. So, um, Leslie, what did you think of this uh, this paper?
1: Um, first of all, I thought it was a very interesting paper. Um, I think in terms of its practical application, we have lots of cyclists who are looking to maybe um, alter their weight and maybe their practice of that is by doing things like having, um, reducing the calories that they're taking in and some of the findings that we start to see in relation to um, low energy availability was actually, it, it appears, it's a bit detrimental to health. Um, within the cohort?
0: Yeah, the, there's absolutely no doubt you know we do have a trend of um, uh, weight being very important in cyclists, and uh, so um, the energy intake and the balance is obviously critical if you're trying to, to lose weight or maintain a really low weight because we all know that power to weight makes a big difference uh, when it comes to cycling. You know if we reflect back. You know, Bradley Wiggins in his first serious attempt at the Tour de France when he didn't uh, do so well he, you know, he, he then went away for a year and came back for the year that he won it he was really quite slimmed down a lot wasn't he?
1: Absolutely and I guess the, the real crux of this is how are the athletes actually doing this and are they doing it in safe ways or are they doing it in ways that actually could you know, become detrimental to health and maybe not necessarily right now but maybe later in life Sure. I think
0: before we go into sort of the details of the study, you know, just really through the introduction of this, I know for me it's a, actually a relatively new term uh, this uh, relative energy deficit in sport, or red S as it's been called. Now, this is a, a term that's been described by the International Olympic Committee and really is a, a, a measure of, of low energy uh, availability. Um, Now, while they say in both male and female athletes, up until now really the focus has been very much on female athletes and we know historically female athletes, long distance runners and and gymnasts and so on, there is a a huge range of of, uh, health issues related to low energy intake. But I think certainly in cycling and male cycling, this is the first paper I've seen that really comes and starts to address this issue.
1: I would absolutely agree with that and I think it's um, an area in terms of research that has maybe been overlooked um, and it's definitely very important based on all of those facts of what you just said in terms of people trying to attain these really high power to weight ratios in order to perform well in the sport.
0: So um, let's have a, a little dig in then to, to some of the detail, um, certainly the interesting detail of this paper. and we. We don't intend to to read every single detail of of the research papers that we look at, but just pick out some of the the key things that we believe that makes the research novel and uh, interesting. So I suppose, uh, you know, it came from the title, uh, you know, part of the assessment method that's used in this study um, used a a questionnaire and uh, an interview and the reason for that was that, obviously, it's difficult mm. um, to um, actually mm. assess energy mm. and uh, intake and thus energy balance. Um, so if you're going to use a, have a large group of, of participants, then it gets complicated.
1: Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and I think what was um, really excellent about it was... Yes, they did bring in these novel techniques of using something maybe relatively simple like a questionnaire, but it was backed up by having an absolute expert in the field conducting the interviews. And then they actually performed a DEXA scan on individuals. So those of you um, who are listening who aren't aware of what a DEXA scan is, that actually it's almost like a full body x-ray and it gives us the ability to look at various components within an athlete, so we can look at things like body composition, and um, but importantly, we can also start to look at bone and bone health and bone mineral density, which is really what we're focusing on today.
0: So, uh, just to sort of give you a little flavour then of, of the actual questionnaire, now, while we you know We understand the difficulty of assessing energy expenditure and this is one way of doing it. It does have some limitations and I suppose that's around the actual uh, questions used. But just to give you an idea of what um, questions uh, were asked of the riders, uh, they were asked about whether they had uh, any details of intentional weight loss, uh, number of fasted rides per week, uh, fueling for rides over one hour, and post-training recovery nutrition and use of supplements. So we know that you know the, these actually are quite important issues, and and any of the you know cycling uh, listeners will know for sure that these are practices that they probably and or have become fashionable. Let's say certainly. Um, there was rumors coming out of the likes of Team Sky and, and other professional teams of of fasting rides, you know, going before rides and so on. So, you know, this certainly has become a bit of a trend.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, if I draw on my experience of working with diff- different athletes um, within the cycling profession, it's definitely something that comes up time and time again where people are doing these fasted rides. Some are trying to take it a step further, so they're drinking black coffee to try and accelerate their metabolism to really increase the amount of energy that has been burnt during that exercise. But I guess the key again is, are they actually replenishing well enough post-ride if they are doing that? And actually, is it beneficial to the overall performance of those athletes and is there a safer way that we could um, progress with this type of training or weight loss?
0: I suppose the other thing that we do need to consider, and actually in this uh, this paper, I should have said at the beginning, it's in uh, I forgot to say it's in the BMJ Open Sports Exercise Medicine Journal, um, and they just published uh, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, it, they don't actually talk about um, much or discuss much here about the quality of the diet, so the focus is very much on the the quantity, in other words, the the energy deficit. Um, but clearly, the quality of that, what you take in in terms of proportionality of um, c- protein and carbohydrate is going to be important as well.
1: Absolutely. And again, I think that's another absolute key topic of um, currently what's happening within cycling fields. So people are adopting different types of diets in order to achieve these weight losses. So for instance, people might go to a more protein based diet where they're actually reducing the carbohydrate content. Again, it's about thinking about how the balance of those um, two macronutrients actually, um, you know, impact on this overall energy availability and what impact that has on performance.
0: I think one of the the strengths of this paper as well is is the the number of uh, participants. So they had 50, which is a good number when it comes to this type of, of research. Um, and and uh, over a wide age range, so from uh, 18 to 71, uh, good quality riders as well in terms of their, their sort of background and years of uh, cycling training. Um, so in that respect, you know, I think the findings are really quite valid in terms of giving us a bit of a cross section, if you like, of that competitive um, um, exercise, competitive cycling group. And uh, and so, therefore, the findings I think apply across a, a wide section of of the cycling uh, community. So, let's have a little summary then, Leslie. What did you pick out as some of the key findings then?
1: So, some of the key findings associated with the paper were first of all that twenty eight percent of that cohort actually reported and um, were diagnosed with low energy availability. So. I guess what that tells us is that this is actually an issue, this is something that is influencing a wide range of cyclists. Um, Based on that, there was then um, a finding of 44% of those cyclists actually had um, low lumbar bone mass density, which could, again, um, make their their bones more fragile, it could have more implications in later um, age. Mm
0: And, uh, of course, the other thing that uh, that they did uh, look at was um, other exercise. Um, so I think there's a couple of interesting points that we could draw out of that because um, they did report that uh, those cyclists who had the, the low energy availability or low energy intake um, who had not undertaken uh, prior to sort of... Uh, uh, being a, a cyclist, who uh, had not taken in sports that had uh, any load-bearing exercise, had significantly lower lumbar spine um, uh, density and composition. So, so that seems to suggest that you know, if you at younger age, if you take part in load-bearing exercises, you can. Um, uh, have a, a start point of a stronger and more dense uh, bone, a higher bone density, which is somewhat then preserved, or maybe it's just the rate of decline is the same and you start from a higher, a higher point.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's a really important fact to take forward. So... There's many cyclists who all they do is spend time on a bike. And even if they're doing strength training, they might do that, but they're doing it on a bike. They're not thinking about the implications of actually some load-bearing exercises and how that can help to enhance their bone mineral density.
0: Um, What was also interesting is that they did report that those people who did currently so in conjunction with their cycling, did some strength training. The, the actual strength training they did was just predominantly to increase leg strength. Now of course, that won't impact on your spinal uh, bone density, um, and certainly you know again from my experience of working with some older cyclists, there is a, a quite a high incidence of older cyclists uh, breaking hips from falling off their bike because. You know, they have low bone density in their hips. So it certainly seems that uh, it's something that certainly warrants, you know, more investigation to just really fully understand what the bone density looks like for cyclists, um, what's going to be the most effective exercises, additional exercises to cycling that might um, help those Uh, cyclists either maintain or, you know, even at an older age you can still um, gain bone mass, there is still the ability to gain uh, bone mass if you stress the bones in the the right way Um, so I think that's a really important point for maybe some coaches to take away arguably maybe if there was a study that compared, uh, you know, cyclists who only cycled versus triathletes, now that might be quite revealing um, because of the impact from the running
1: Absolutely, and I think um, this is a great paper and it's really um, opened my eyes in terms of the issues that are surrounding energy availability in these cyclists. There's a lot of questions coming out of this paper and I think there's real opportunity for further um, studies to, to come out of this.
0: Because again, there's some aspects. While they did measure a number of sort of endocrinological uh, variables, and we're not going to deal with those too much today, um, one of the aspects that Leslie and I had discussed previously was really also around immune function. Now we do know that uh, you know diet can have a big impact on on uh, your immune uh, uh, status, uh, make you more vulnerable. Um, So definitely just, and I know this paper really just deals with energy balance, but we know that that's a a factor, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. I think in terms, when we start to look at things like immune function, um, again, weight loss um, and when individuals are undergoing weight loss, there appears to be a bit of a crux point where they can make themselves more susceptible to illness. And that can have lots of different impacts, Um, on the athlete, so for instance they might have to stop training um, and it can really start to alter the goals. So again, it's really important if athletes are undergoing these periods of weight loss that it's factored in to their training plan well and the additional stress of um, a reduction in calories is really taken into consideration to make sure that that balance doesn't go too far and actually can, you know, um, result in the athlete becoming ill.
0: Because I think it's difficult, you know, how do you know what is your optimal weight? uh, And how does that link then to maintaining that and, uh, you know, with your energy intake and at the same time actually having a, you know, compared to the general public, having a very high energy intake because of all the training you do?
1: What a great question. I don't think we're anywhere close to, to knowing that answer fully yet. And actually I think that for every individual it will be individual. So the key is is that when you are working with athletes, if you're a coach or if you are an athlete yourself, that you're paying attention to these things when you are reducing weight. Are there points where you're starting to see, you know, the wheels fall off? Are you starting to see anything in terms of their training? Are they not able, are they reporting that they feel more fatigued, etc. Can we be a little bit smarter in how we guide these athletes? And the athlete guides us as well. I think it's really important that it's a two-way conversation in order to really make sure that we are getting the best out of for all parties. Mm
0: -hmm. I think it's, you know, to sort of kind of come to some sort of summary and and to give some sort of advice for both the cycling coaches and, and riders. It's interesting in the paper they have a definition here of their chronic low energy availability and they're actually suggesting here the definition of that is a substantial weight loss of greater than seven percent within five weeks uh, and sustained uh, over more than 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 one season Uh, in other words 12 months so i again just picking up on leslie's sort of message there um okay yeah i think uh, there is potentially for some riders room um to have some uh energy deficit in in order to to lose weight. Um, Understanding what that optimal weight is, is extremely difficult. And I think regardless, I think it has to be something which cannot be a rapid loss because the risks are really high. And there's also the the, the chronic nature, and this is something that's difficult and nearly impossible without a DEXA scan, is to try and understand in this case, we were you know concentrating on bone health so what what is it doing to your bone health? Um, you may know what it 's doing to your performance that 's easy what 's it doing to your bone health and there 's a whole lot of other things in terms of uh, physiological function, immune function endocrine function that could also be uh, affected so all in all it's a, it's a it 's a very interesting uh, paper i think um, actually um, raises a lot more questions that and more research that needs to be done in this area. Um, but certainly it's a start point in terms of uh, giving us a bit of a, a warning, an indicator that there could be some issues going on here. So hopefully you've uh, enjoyed uh, our little uh, summary of this paper and some of the advice uh, related to it. Um, What I'll do as well is it is an open access paper so anybody can actually go and read it if you are that way inclined and I'll put it on their website with a link to um, the the actual paper itself. So our website is uh, cycling-science.com. Right now, for the uh, section that we regular section we're going to have in our podcast is uh, a little look at some some recent news, and uh, um, in particular focus on the, if you like the science scientific elements of uh, news that's in the the, the cycling press. Um, so the first one that we're going to uh, look at today is uh, quite interesting. Is uh, you may remember in the press, uh, Robert Marchand uh, is the cyclist, the French cyclist, who's got back on his bike again at 106. Uh, so he comes out of retirement. Um, so Robert Marchand is quite a, a remarkable sort of character. Um, uh, you know, having uh, set uh, a world record for the. Um, the over 105 age group, he had retired, but all of a sudden uh, he's back on his bike. So what do we think, guys, of uh, riding at 106? I suppose our first comment would be is, let's hope it's us that's able to ride at 106.
2: Absolutely, I think 106 is, is, is A, is, is a fantastic feat to get to just in terms of age, but to probably still ride your bike and have the ability to coordinate and, and, to do all the things that are demanded by, with riding a bike is, is pretty phenomenal. We know Leslie's just completed um, the, in, in, in the Strath Puffer 24-hour race, mountain bike race up north and had a few smashes, etc. Do you feel like you're 106
1: today, Leslie? I feel like I'm older than 106, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I think it's absolutely great. I love that um, his training regime is that he's cycled for an hour a day on his home trainer. And that's never been something that he's stopped. So, again, it just kind of proves that um, the longevity of training is always there with you as long as you're sensible about what you're doing. Yeah. I suppose
0: I'm guessing the, you know, the fact it's a home trainer is the fact that maybe his uh, balance and coordination is not so good as it was. <coughs> and I think certainly some of the photographs that I've seen, um, I think he needs a bit of help. I think he needs to lift it onto his bike and... And and heavily chaperoned around the track, um, which is probably the only safest place uh, to go. Nonetheless, you know, taking away the uh, maybe his lack of coordination, uh, you know, the fact that uh, you know he managed to, or he is the current world record holder for um, uh, the uh, tr- one hour on the track. You know, covering twenty two point five and a bit uh, kilometers. It's it's something else at 105, you know. There's there's uh, many of us don't get to 105. So it's interesting the physiology, you know, that that's going on there in terms of, you know, that he's you know the regular activity has enabled him to keep going. But uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting to get him into a lab just to see, you know, what his physiology is actually like. Uh, You know, how much of an outlier is he for 105 year olds? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's it's interesting as well because if you're a bike rider then
2: part of the attraction of 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 being um on the bike is that it actually supports you. So if you get to a hundred and six and say you've been a runner or a, you know, a football or soccer player etc, you might have more abuse just on the actual loading part of it. So there's benefit in terms of that unloading that we see in terms of whether veteran athletes if you look at swimming it's a great example of, of being a little but also now we're seeing it with biking mm-hmm. and cycling. Uh, for me, interesting to see with our mountain bikers. So I just mentioned, like, Leslie's had, a, had, a, had a, a race at the weekend and be involved in, in, in the 24-hour uh, race. Mountain bikers come off. Mountain bikers, at this moment time, we don't have the veteran mountain bikers. It's such a, um, I suppose, a new sport compared to road cycling. It'd be interesting to see if we're going to have, have mountain biker vets coming in at in 106. Hmm. That'd be interesting probably probably not but of course
0: again picking up on one of your points there g um obviously uh the unweightedness of uh, or the let's say the low impact of of cycling does enable people to continue at a much older age and and we know that uh you know a lot of the expansion in the I suppose that the mammals the middle-aged men and lycra is the fact that they've transferred from another sport that they possibly can't do anymore so football rugby a Lot of guys have transferred. Absolutely. Um, however, there is a risk involved with that. And, you know, we, we talked about it in our section on, although uh, it was related more to nutrition, the paper that we covered. Um, clearly, the fact that you don't weight your bones um, does potentially make them more brittle, and, and osteoporosis is a, is a possibility. Mm-hmm. And certainly, I know in my uh, experience, is, that it uh, isn't uncommon for an older cyclist to fall off and break a hip and it's, it's the fact that they don't have any loading means that their bone density is a wee bit lower so, so while we would want to encourage people to keep cycling we might also as uh, a as physiologists encourage them to do other things even if it's just walking to try and maintain uh, uh, sort of bone mass
2: I think that's really yeah. important with
0: the older athlete as well the veteran athlete yeah, yeah low impact stuff Yeah. So walking yeah. there you go Easy fix. Yeah. And so, sort of sticking with the theme of, uh, of of older cyclists again, it was really interesting at uh, the end of the year for when Strava published their data. Um, they do every year, which is uh, the sort of annual annual year report. And uh, the older cyclists again do really well in this report because if you look at uh, you know the headline that came from that annual report was that you know cyclists over fifty are the most active bike riders in the UK. Arguably the world, you know, because the data that they produce is, is, is worldwide. Um, so so that's, that's really interesting that we've got this uh, really uh, or age group that's, that's uh, dominating the, the mileage. Uh. What's your take on that then, Richard? Why do you think that is? Um, I, I, I certainly believe, and it's a really interesting aspect that I'm not aware has been researched yet, is, is the retirement effect. Um, so I know anecdotally speaking to um, lots of riders that uh, you know that uh, once they get to the retirement age it gives them the opportunity and the time mm-hmm. that they can actually get out on their bike um, so I think that's certainly one thing, I hope you're not looking at me just thinking and saying that just because you're over 50 Richard that you would know more about this uh, I'm afraid that my mileage hasn't contributed all that much this year to Strava it, it wasn't it wasn't a disaster but it wouldn't be something that I would be publishing uh, or, uh, raving about well to be fair that was where I was going with it in
2: terms of just <laughs> <laughs> no joking <laughs> I did think there must be something to do with it in terms of having time to do it and also then it, 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 within the UK just the weather that we get as well so if you've got time to choose when it is you can do these things as well but you know and see people out riding in all kinds of weather as, as well But um, so it's interesting that group come through the strongest for me personally then as a scientist and we're looking at what happens in within society and in cultures going through not just in cycling but other sports as well are we are we, are we going to, um, are we going to get to the point where we see more veteran athletes than the youngsters coming through so we know there's a problem with trying to get youngsters into sport and and get the younger generations to continue to do that so we see it in mountain biking we also see it in other sports that are struggling golf for example as well just to get people in and, and a lot of the time it is a time thing as well we're all even time pressure right i think that might be something coming through with the youngsters i think we we'll have to work hard to ensure that the message gets across that and um, doing activities is, is, is useful still yeah
1: I, i'm going to jump in here as well i also think there's a part to play in terms of the way people train when they're later In life, or a little bit older, and that actually they're not trying to train every single day and nail themselves during those training sessions. They actually give themselves those rest days in between, so they can train for longer periods of time. Sometimes the culture in our young athletes or our young recreational people who are taking part in sport, especially when they get involved in something like Strava, they just go out and they try and win their Strava section every day. So they're not actually. Getting the recovery that they need in between those sessions, and I think that they're the um, slightly more middle-aged individuals might feel it a little bit more, so they'll definitely give themselves a little bit of recovery in between that. To
0: go out and smash those Stravas and win their strava times as
2: well. <laughs> <really
1: important? laughs> yes, absolutely.
0: But, you know, I think some of the research that you know that I've just done recently, looking at sort of sports participation uh, in Scotland in particular, and. You know, it's really interesting, uh, you know, the age group that I was looking at specifically was, uh, or contrasting, was the over 65s versus uh, the younger age groups. And, um, you know, cycling is a sport where both, you know, it's it's experienced a growth, you know, unlike sort of football and and golf and uh, swimming. You know, these these are sports that are, are actually in decline in sort of general participation, what you'd call maybe the more traditional uh, sports, whereas individual sports like uh, jogging, running, and cycling are on the up, but very much in the older age group, um, you know. And again, uh, although this is a podcast about cycling science, you know, I think the Park Run data says very similar, um, and and the running data that comes from the Strava, because obviously it's not just a platform for cyclists; it, it covers runners as well. Again, it's the the older age groups that are coming through that are. Um, uh, you know, clocking up the miles uh, running and cycling and another way to look at it as well is, I suppose, is the competitive opportunities that now exist in the Master Athlete sector um, so if you look at the World Masters Games you know, it's been an explosion in the numbers of people that are going to those sort of events and those categories even at a national and regional level have become much more popular so there's a, you know, a segment of, of highly competitive uh, older folk, not just those people that are making up on the high numbers in terms of participation that always
2: interests me as well because I look at the uh, the young guns and the professionals that are getting sponsored etc and I always think that the uh, bike brands need to start looking at the, the older athletes as well because that's A, they have the money and then if we're seeing that that's the growing market as well, think about um, pushing and sponsoring some of the older athletes as well Mm-hmm. And and making sure that the message gets out there about that they're not they're not always just looking at taking you know, in the youngsters and the professionals coming through because there's a really good market, and sometimes I think they forget about that. Mm-hmm. So basically, sponsor me,
0: that's yeah. what we're saying, and you, Richard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would be happy with some sponsorship. <laughs> it's particularly just to spend my time riding my bike. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, Strava's a a very, very popular online uh, platform where people, you know, uh, I suppose, in sense, race each other virtually in terms of their KOMs or whatever, uh, their segments that they try and beat each other over. Or QOMs. QOMs, yeah. Uh, sorry, Leslie, yeah, QOMs. Um, the other, uh, well, a growing platform in this arena, obviously, is, is Zwift, and Zwift was in the, the news recently in terms of trying to, to raise some more capital to further extend uh, the platform. But... You know, I think Swift has really come up very quickly in the last few years. And, uh, you know, even I was surprised looking at some of the statistics uh, in terms of, you know, that there are over a million subscribers. Um, and I know G's not a big fan of this, but, you know, I have to admit, I have very recently signed up myself um, and therefore have had a dabble in it. I wouldn't necessarily call myself an expert in Swift. In um but it's certainly grown in popularity. Yeah,
2: I mean, uh, if, I'm a, if I put on my, my mountain bike of Scotland uh, hat on, which is a commercial entity, I mean, hats off. I think it's amazing. I mean, you see the growth in the market, etc. and I just wish they were a, a Scottish company based in Scotland that we could help in terms of that, because it's, the numbers that you're quoting there, Richard, are quite stunning. And, and again, I think it goes into how people are living as well these days, lifestyle and it's making it easy for them to ride a bike albeit it's a fixed bike and then to interact with people and they're doing that more socially as opposed to on their phones anyway with how they actually interact on the social platforms so I can see how it would work I'm just a bit of a dinosaur, it's not my not my thing, I like going out on my bike, I like getting outside particularly I like going into the hills, that, that's me and that whole interaction but I actually, you know, I really understand how it works for some people and uh, I think is, a, it's a really good marketing tool, or it's a really good business model.
0: Certainly, so uh, the you know if, if I think about when I was really young, um, you know, uh, starting out uh, on my cycling career, and turbo trainers came in. You know, I you know I said I've, I couldn't really get turbo trainers. So yes, I used them occasionally, but uh, God, they were boring as anything. I suppose this takes you know some of that boredom away. It's it's an opportunity to to be potentially race or just go out and ride with other people or you know obviously there are training sessions on there uh, structured training plans um and it's safer you know there's we you know we we do live in a society where you know we're very vulnerable um you know trying to clock up miles training out on the roads and in the winter time it's not the nicest so you know i think it's, it does have a place what do you think leslie
1: um, absolutely. I mean, I definitely agree. It does have a a place in the market. Um, I'm really interested to see how it develops. What sort of riders that we start to produce? You know, are we going to end up with a nation of riders who don't go outdoors anymore and just spend all of their time and um, inside? I think in terms of a training tool, it can be really beneficial. And um, because obviously you have that competitive element, you've got. um if you want to do some harder sessions, you've got that real ability to. And compete against others during that time. Um, But if I put my sports science head on, uh, especially when I'm thinking about the immune system, my main worry would be are people just riding super hard every time that they go on to this and you know is there going to be a point where um, we get a dropout because of that, because people are getting injured or they're getting ill based on the intensity and the continual intensity of that workout.
0: But of course, you know, it's seen in the state now, obviously we've got a professional, you know, as a UCI uh, pro team, there's a professional league on there um, and we're told that half the professional Peloton are, are, are subscribers to, to Zwift. Um, again, is that marketing? Is that marketing? It, it could be, it. yeah, yeah. Which, which is fine, i not issue with
2: that. What I would like is a bit more in terms of, you know, for the discussion just on the stats of the people that are actually using so, in particular, is it growing the market? sorry, not growing the market, but growing the number of people and the type of people that are actually turning to cycling? If we, you know, in terms of this, so will that mean them get more youngsters coming through? Is it making it more appealing? So, the kind of groups that you know you would start using it, and and if it brings more people on and they are doing it, and like they're really fantastic, or is it just going to be the same people who cycle being brought in? And, and it seems that it's going to be it's it's, it's, it's changing the demographic. And if
0: that doesn't, and if that is the case, then uh, all for it, but of course you know there are certainly coaches out there who yeah. who are very much um, and I'll, I'll just use the term generally uh, indoor trainers is is their thing mm. um, because the coach feels that it's a much more controllable environment for the athlete you know they can set a, a, a training program, and it's very easy uh, to uh, adhere to that on an indoor trainer versus actually going out on the road where you've got uphill downhill traffic and headwind tailwind and maybe the the training zones that you're supposed to be in are not so easy to achieve so I know there's certainly a whole bunch of coaches out there who preferentially move towards you know an indoor trainer because of that controllability yes Richard
2: this <laughs> I, get, I get where you're going with that and absolutely it how's that um but I'll go back to Leslie's point I think as well as just ensure that um the way that the the platform gets set up it's um it's it, it definitely means that, that whoever' setting the platform will pass you know why is it that people wanting uh, continue to work with the platform etc and the in and within that then it's just making sure that they they, they do or, or they can't put programs together that that play or i, I should say look at how you people train and engage with it and then work with, with, within the normal parameters of, of a training plan and in particular then play, play due diligence to the, the immune response etc. That's one of the big issues that we have always had with um,
0: the youngsters coming through. So it's just having a bit of control and a bit of sensibility around that I suppose. Well, regardless of our own personal opinions and whether we would actually want to do it or not it's certainly very popular. I know that you know I've been logging on at times and you know you can see you know nearly up to twelve thousand people on at that point in time you know, that's an incredibly popular uh, you know for people you know twelve thousand people to be doing activity on there at any one point in time um and obviously this extra funding looks like they're, they're going to try and grow. There are of course other platforms out there and I'm sure there will be other competition but mm. at the moment Swift seems to, have be, to be the market leader. Really
2: interesting just to see how it grows and does it continue to grow or, or else is something else going to replace it mm. you know, as a, as a platform because that's what we're seeing within the market etc. You know, we don't know what technology is going to be like in 10 years time but you know, if this is actually
0: making people do something physical you've got to be happy with that. Of course, you know, I've had the comment, you know, in terms of it's, it's safer, I can race when I want to, it's cheaper. Although you pay a subscription, monthly subscription, mm-hmm. it's cheaper than actually going to race. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you have to get to the race, the races can be expensive to enter and so on. So, you know, I think there are other elements to it. But anyway, uh, let's move on in terms of the topic and our, our final... Uh, news item that we're going to cover it's it's not necessarily a a very recent news item but i think it's one that will run and run uh, until the decision is is made but in the press there were some suggestions around certainly a time when they announced the the route of the you know the 2019 tour de france that there was possibility they might ban power meters during the race now it's not progressed any further than suggestions but guys what do you think uh you know what 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 really is the influence of parameters in something like the Tour de France.
1: In terms of the teams, I think um certainly over the last few years longer, we see um teams like Sky absolutely controlling the Peloton and I think a large part of that has to be down to the power meters so they know exactly what thresholds that they can sit at in terms of power, how long they can keep those riders on and they're monitoring that continually. So we're seeing, you know, we don't really get um, substantial breakaways anymore. It's all very much controlled by that, um, by those team leaders in the big teams. And, um, But I don't know if um, just um, banning parameters would be enough to change that sort of race etiquette, because it would depend on the communication that was still getting handed back via the team and other measurements that were coming, because I guess you could still... Um, you'd still be able to analyse a lot about the riders' performance based on that. Just interesting you
0: mentioned communication because obviously that's another thing that's been trialled in some races is deliberately taking away the earpieces and so on. So you know, is it possible to disentangle data in front of you in terms of parameter versus being able to know exactly what's happening and have direct instructions from the team car? Don't know. But G, what do you think? Um,
2: information is power and if you have the correct information or misinformation going out then it can be very powerful. And as Leslie's alluding to, if you take away the power meter data, there's going to be different ways and other ways that you can monitor the progress or what's actually happening within it for your athletes, etc. And if you're doing that in the team car, if you can communicate what you need to communicate, because you can do that analysis back in the car in different ways without it. So it's, it's almost redundant taking the of meters way as, you, as you're suggesting then looking at when you, if you don't have the communication element because you can communicate that information which is the powerful part of it um, it's almost like okay we can uh, look at different ways of analysing the workload analysing the physiology analysing what's actually going on we can do that time has moved on technology has moved on so we're just having the conversation about shift etc and then we don't use it as long as the playing field's uh, level for everybody, so I go. If you you know, I always look at F one and then Formula One. If you look at Formula One, it, and the teams that have all the money to invest to do all the, they're the teams that are going to constantly win. We don't want a situation where teams can come in and have pay, have all the best technology, all the best information coming through because they have the money to do that and constantly win.
0: But again, um, I, you know, I think the whole peloton has power now. You know, it's 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 a growth yeah. industry. You know, a lot of very uh, amateur cyclists now are at used power, you know, and I think mm-hmm. I suppose the one thought that runs through my mind is that you know i 'm not aware of any systematic research that 's potentially looked at. Mm-hmm. Has there been a change in the pattern? Anecdotally, people say races have been closed down, brakes don 't get away i don 't know i 've never come across any research that has systematically assessed this. Of course, there is a piece of research that exists which was, if my memory serves me right, came from, from Tim Old's group in Australia, um, where they created the model, and I think certainly a few years back it was used in the Tour de France and the commentary teams and so on, that, and it was a model that could predict, you know, in terms of if a brake got away, you know, the number of riders in it, the distance from the finish, the terrain and so on, and everything, you know, there was a model that would predict whether that brake would survive or not, um, and it would be really interesting, I suppose, there must, you know, Tim when he created that must have had some database to sort of, you know, model that, that on. I wonder if that's possible to go back and look at that data, because, it, you know, in theory, you know, that should have changed and whether that model's still valid. It'd be a really interesting study to look at to see if, you know, and again, I suppose that's the other thing. It's, as scientists, we would like to see some empirical data which would either validate or otherwise the use of parameters, you know, should they be taken away, and so on, rather than an anecdotal. You know, is it, you know, it seems to be all the people who don't win the Tour de France's and Tour of Italy's and so on are the ones that are complaining, or are the ones so far anyway in the peloton that have gone, oh yeah, we think it's a good idea that parameters are got rid of, mm-hmm. really. They'll still use them in training, and I think these guys are, are, are well enough are good enough athletes in terms of their perception of effort that they know from what it was like when they were in the training ride, even they didn't have them in the tour, I still think there would be an awful lot of control. And I suppose, coming back to your point, G, they, I guess that if they did take them away now with, I'll, I'll just call them performance analysts that, that mm. some of the teams will have, they'll be able to work out based on the speed and the wind conditions what power the riders are doing anyway Absolutely. Um, so the riders may not have it in front of them but the team cars could have you know somebody working away the, the, the numbers and crunching the numbers and telling them Right, this is the pace you need to ride at and you'll catch the brake in a certain amount of time. There's a model there that tells us that you'll be able to catch the brake as long as you ride at yeah, you know, 20 they, mile an hour.
1: If we take in what we were just talking about in terms of Strava, they've already got an algorithm that they're doing that. So they're yeah. using you know speed and heart rate data in order to be able to calculate um, estimated hours. Yeah, power. exactly. yeah.
0: Of course, it all exists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting thing it, for me
2: is that part of the you know setting up of the podcast that you you know you sold it to us, Richard and said was that yes research bases that are within it then conversations you you know that, like a good PhD thesis throws out more questions and more avenues of research and absolutely now there's there's powerful enough data that's out there and ways of doing it and handling in terms of big data that this is just set up for. To go back and have a look at it and, 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 and rework the models, but with having that amount of, as you say, the I'm putting in more information and data into it to make it uh, a bit more interesting, yeah. I think and maybe more powerful in terms of the predictions, etc.
0: Okay, I think that's the end of the news uh, for this particular uh, episode. Thank you very much. Um, the next section of our podcast is a, a regular feature uh, where we try to interview somebody who. can give a different angle on uh, the topic that we have covered in the paper, the academic paper that we review uh, in every episode. So for uh, this episode um, my co-host Leslie is going to uh, conduct an interview with uh, Dr. Ruth McKean. uh, Ruth has uh, worked for uh, many years uh, as a performance nutritionist at the uh, Sports Scotland Institute of Sport, uh, has worked with uh, also uh, Scottish swimming and has helped many uh, Olympic and Commonwealth um, athletes with uh, nutritional support. Uh, She's recently just moved to uh, uh, the uh, British uh, Skeleton Squad. Um, But Ruth's going to talk uh, a bit about... um, the relative uh, energy deficit uh, in sports people and also um, talks about uh, the work that she has uh, conducted when she helped Mark Beaumont to develop a nutritional strategy when he uh, completed his successful attempt to uh, cycle around the world in less than 80 days.
1: Hello, everyone. So my guest today has spent eight years working as a performance nutritionist with Sports Scotland at the Institute of Sport before moving on to Scottish swimming in a freelance setting between 2015 and 2018. She's also ASIC's protein dietitian. And over that time, she's helped to prepare athletes for World Championships, Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games. She is a fierce competitor in her own right. And I know this through personal experience and has many accolades to her name, including Scottish cross country running championships and 5,000 metre track championships. In 2007, she supported the adventure cyclist, Mark Beaumont with nutritional advice in his successful circumnavigation of the world on a bicycle. And in 2016, I had the privilege of working alongside her as Mark attempted and, re- and successfully rebroke the world record cycling around the world in 78 days, 14 hours, and 40 minutes. My guest today is Ruth McKean. And Ruth, welcome to the show.
3: Nice to be here and thank you for having me.
1: And I was wondering if you could just take a few minutes just to tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and what you do.
3: Well, you've um, kindly introduced me there in regards, um, a bit about my background, but I'm in quite an interesting phase of my life because after working all 17 years of my professional life in Scotland, I very recently relocated to Bath and Aloella continues, the Asics Protein Team Dietitian, and that's mainly involved in marathon running. I will be starting soon with the British Skeleton Squad, um, which I'm quite excited about because as you said, I've been involved in lots of summer Olympic sports, um, but less so within Olympic winter sports. And the skeleton rules are changing towards a more tightly controlled weight category. So athletes who are typically fast, strong and heavy will now be required to be fast, strong and fairly lean. So it's an interesting time, but certainly from a nutritional viewpoint to get involved, because I want to create a healthy cover um, culture around this new weight rule. Uh, and, and, you know, as that part of it, trying to avoid low energy availability and like I say, just create um, good health for athletes as well as good performance.
1: And that leads really on nicely to, um, if I just recap about the paper that we were talking about earlier in the podcast, and that was the one that was entitled Low Energy Availability Assessed by Sports Specific Questionnaire and Clinical Interview Indicative of Bone Health, Endocrine Profile and Cycling Performance in Competitive Male Cyclists. So for the, the next part of this podcast, Ruth and I are really going to explore what this means. So we've reviewed the paper, we've had a bit of a look about what the science is saying, but what we're really interested in exploring is what this actually means to athletes, coaches and really everyday life and training. So to kick things off Ruth, I was wondering if you could explain from your perspective, the impact of relative energy deficit in sports, Red S, and that, the impact that has on athletes and your experience.
3: Well, I mean, unfortunately, it's all too common. Um, You know, you'll get it in a lot of weight category sports, dancing and gymnasts, but sports that I've been more heavily involved in, endurance running, you know, I repeatedly hear um, lighter equals better. Or in cycling, you'll hear, you know, if I lose more weight, my power to weight ratio will improve. And for some individuals, you're still able to fuel sufficiently. This can be absolutely true, but it's simply not the case for all athletes. An athlete cannot conform to other people's body composition goals. Um, You know, it's individual to what's optimum for health and performance for each athlete. Um, And unfortunately... Um, as a performance dietitian, nine times out of 10, and I would say this for a lot of health professionals, we get referrals when the athlete, you know, they're already running into problems in performance and health. So effectively the wheels have already started to come off. So um, the education of having low energy availability is important um, because I get referrals um, which turn out to be about red S. So, you know, typically the, the usual ones that might be stress fractures or amenorrhea, and that's, you know, when either they've stopped menstruating or that's secondary amenorrhea or primary amenorrhea when they're, they're being delayed and starting. Or blood, you know, iron deficiency, you've got anemia. Um, or, you know, they've been very healthy athletes and suddenly they're running into a lot of immune problems, missing a lot of days off training. Or, you, unfortunately, a lot of eating disorders. Um, or also people more recently, and I've seen this definitely in the last two years, People now doing a lot of fast at riding or fast at running, and running into problems because um, suddenly they're training, they've moved the food, they're taking they've taken food out with reali- not realising it, and fast at tra- rides don't work for everyone. Um, and as practitioners, we always talk about these having tools in the box. And fasted um, rides and fasted running, or is 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 just one of those tools. But if you've already got issues with recovery, you've already got immune problems, you've already got a low body weight, then throwing fasted training into it is not really probably going to be appropriate for that athlete. Um, and to me, a lot of the fasted rides is about marginal gains, and there's a lot of other things athletes can work on to improve their performance rather than doing faster. And that's not to say we do use it in elite sport, um, but we always look at the athlete on an individual basis and decide if that's best um, for them. Um, but I would also say, like, a lot of um, athletes actually, it's unintentional um, re- un- unintentional relative energy deficit. They don't know they're doing it. Um, and actually, those are the ones, um, from a practitioner's point of view, they will certainly be the easiest to treat you know sometimes it's simply lack of knowledge of how to fuel an intense program, or sometimes they go into a sport um, and they just follow the culture you know we hear about clean eating um, or and i and i would i, I say this um, it was sometimes they just follow fashion trends, so you know at one stage was um you hear very successful athletes eating gluten gluten free so then they decide to follow it or even um, at the moment vegans quite popular um and I wholeheartedly, if someone's doing it for st- sustainability and, and very, for those such reasons. But unfortunately, a lot of people mask it as an eating disorder or they do it in the hope that they're going to lose weight rather than for necessarily health benefits. So I see the in- the people that have intentional and then those that are on unintentional energy deficits. So um, on a practical basis, you could be fair to a number of things and a lot of it comes down to low energy availability and they do not understand the consequences that is having on their health and ultimately they're not for short term they might see improvements but the wheels do start coming off um, and performance ultimately whether it's for men they might notice it through par decreases for women they might notice it that they're starting to get injured more or they just can't cope with the training Co- coaches will say they're so inconsistent um, so yeah so it's it's it is definitely a problem in sport and it, it's more common than I, I think a lot of people are fully aware of.
1: I think it's really interesting, you know, um, from the work that I've done with various athletes and, you know, when we work with athletes and um, personally, I've worked with everyone, you know, up to the elite level, but a lot of the work that I do is with recreational athletes. So we're looking for ways to help to improve them in a safe manner that's helpful for their health. Um, and I think sometimes that's where the story's lost. So with some of these trends, people are too quick to jump on to that sort of bandwagon and um, to try and get those performance benefits without actually thinking about the impact that that's having on the body. And I mean, you touched on one of my favourite um, topics there, the immune system and recovery. You know,
3: mm-hmm. when we're
1: thinking about training and exercise um, getting people to go out and do the hard miles is normally the relatively easy part of our job. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they understand that... By doing, you know, some exercise, they're going to get benefits. But the reality of the situation is very little. Little people pay attention to the fact that it's during the recovery phase. is where you get all the adaptation and all the benefits of that really hard exercise. So if you're continually just doing hard sessions and you're breaking down your body all the time, you're going to plateau and you're going to get that staleness.
3: I, I think there is an element of. Um, I don't know. Is it... Um, lack of patience and not seeing the bigger picture. Um, you know, people come in and they want results and they want results fast, whether that's in sport or whether that's in diet, whether it's in lots of things. Um, and it doesn't work like that. You know, you have to do things for years and build up to it. Um, and we know so much more about training smart now and how important recovery is. Um, and actually, you can do less and get better. Um, you can eat more and be better. Um, you just you really, really do need to focus on what is your individual goals rather than following what everyone else is doing. And you can have two Olympic podium-based athletes that get there through entirely different carb, protein ratios, amount of fat they have, and even to an extent different types of training because they find out what works for them. Um, so when you read a lot of things you read in your magazines, I, I often read it and say, well, that's true. But taking out your context, that's that's not true. So it's, it is it is difficult. So it's very much homing in. You know, if you're only getting six hours sleep at night, well, you know, there right. There is, is an element that's going to enhance your immune system and enhance your recovery just by getting more sleep. Um, and lightly actually will prevent you from reaching for the rubbish food. So, you know, there's sometimes lifestyle away from necessarily training and food that you can work to enhance your immune system and enhance your recovery and make you a better athlete?
1: Absolutely. And I think um, from personal experience, when I work with athletes, that's the first thing that I really focus on. It's not about the end goal. It's not about two years down the line, the marathon time that you want to try and reduce, you know, the time trial time that you want to try and reduce or just, you know, the sportive that you want to complete. It's actually about starting to understand you and your body. And when you start to put that loading onto your body, how does it react? Does it react in a good way? Does it react in a bad way? And how can we um, develop that to make sure that you get the best out of all of you know, the training, the nutrition, all of those little tweaks that we can make um, in order to be able to get the best out of performance?
3: I think it you and I work in a lot of sports where particularly you know i 've worked in a lot of endurance sports as you have as well but and that tends to and, and again i 'm generalizing, but as a rule there 's a lot of obsessive personalities and that 's what makes them good um, but with that you when you they sometimes do things at one hundred and ten percent when really um, sometimes even with olympic based um, athletes you know In in many different sports, I'm like, actually, you, you need to relax your diet just a little bit. This is too intense, and you're mentally not going to be able to keep this up for the whole season. You know, let's just know when to put your foot down on the gas so that you're 100% ready to compete. But sometimes, you know, it's almost like, you know, you only need to be 90% ready at this time. You don't need to do everything, you know, Or and that can be regards your peak body mass or for competition. So I don't think it's, you know, quite often, you know, particularly when I've been working in swimming, you see them stripped down very lean. A lot of those swimmers don't sit at that weight all year because they can't be healthy at that weight. So... You know, there's an element of we do periodize it to prevent, to try and keep them healthy throughout the year so they could, they're not missing days in the pool or the days on the track or the days out in the road in the cycling. So sometimes we, people just all they see is the leanness on the starting blocks or, you know, the starting line. Um, and they don't realize what goes on behind that. That actually, that athlete might, so some athletes can stay remarkably lean all year, but not all. And again, that's working with the individual to establish that that is not healthy. And body composition for them all year round so again it's coming back to this you need to read between the lines and decide what really where is your weakness and is it the fact that you do too much is it the fact that you're actually quite um, your diet is so clean that you you're getting to the point where you're not getting enough nutrients in now you can eat an energy dense diet as in food that you're eating has good nutrient value but you do have to be careful when you're doing big miles that you are consuming enough food because it can one of parts of the reason with um relative energy a deficit in sports is you know it can affect your appetite so you know when it starts affecting your appetite then you think you're eating more than you are so sometimes you need to step back and 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 say actually you know i've up my miles here but i have not upped my nutrition and i'm losing weight so and we're not talking about weight going up and down we're talking about a downward trend or you know your clothes getting baggy on you and a lot of athletes unfortunately think oh that's good but uh, not always not always
1: and that seems like a really good point Ruth for us to start to move on to maybe to discuss one of the more unique projects that we worked on together so when we were working with Mark and as he was attempting to break the world record for the second time I think we both knew that we'd embarked on on a project that um was definitely going to be challenging for both of us and for the whole team around because no one had ever done anything like it before. Uh, We knew the demands that were going to be placed on him were going to be rather large. So just to give you a little context of what that looked like in case you weren't aware of the record, um, Mark was going to have to spend between 15 to 16 hours a day on the bike and within that cover somewhere in the region of 240 miles a day. So It was definitely uh, no uh, little feat. Um, I actually recently uh, joined him on a charity ride and we covered 245 miles in one day and I was absolutely broken for about two weeks afterwards. (laughs) So how he actually managed to do it for seven to eight days is uh, beyond me still.
3: Well, he has the most amazingly um, psychology in that head of his. I mean, it's phenomenal. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And i guess maybe it'd be really nice just to talk a little bit about that challenge and really how we honed in on him so we didn't really need to look at no one had done this before we didn't need to look at rule books what had happened but what we really had to understand was about his physiology his nutrition how he dealt with these um these great tasks that were placed on his body and i guess maybe just put in context of the eating if you could just highlight a little bit in terms of how many calories he had to eat during the day. And did you have any main concerns about him uh, developing Red S during this time?
3: Do you know, Liz, I with Mark, actually I had less concern with Red S. Um, partly because I knew if it was a problem, it would be short lived because Mark's got no issue with food. He loves his food. Um, and red uh, S on a more chronic level is probably the more serious of two, and uh, albeit like an acute bout of even a low energy deficit for what he was doing, could have we you know we read that it's short could have problems with you know bone and um, decreasing bone mineral density, but I think it was because my biggest concern was the lack of sleep and the fatigue and the safety on the bike. So really, when we set out, uh, um, and you'll know this, that we set out a very detailed plan and we just kept stripping it back to make it as easy. Um, but actually by making it simple, um, there was a lot of work behind making it simple. Um, so yeah. I just tried to focus on, right, these are the stuff we can try and control. We cannot control the amount of exercise he's doing. We cannot control that the fact he's going to be sleep deprived. Um, but, you know, we really could work on the sufficient fuel. And when we, we, you know, we set a target of a minimum for it, around an average of 8,000 calories a day, kilocalories a day, um, because for stomach comfort that was around where we worked out with mark that seemed to be sustainable um but some of this was well above nine thousand kilocalories a day some less but mostly eight or more so we did pretty well in getting the calories in um and i some part of the problem when i when i've dealt with athletes with red s um with this low energy availability some of it is about um you know it's how they place the food around the day so they go large and parts of the day eight hours so they're not eating enough when that's when they're doing the two sessions a day so i felt timing of food was very important um and we spread you know his protein intake his fat his carbs over the day and we didn't allow him to have massive massive meals all at one going for stomach discomfort um because it would make him probably feel even more sleepy and you know as laura will attend to it wasn't always easy but we made him eat um never any more than 90 minutes he always had to have something um and we used various supplements to sort of um uh, you know supplement what we knew we couldn't get on the road um and we had basic monitoring in his place you know every morning at what 4am what, you know he's on the scales mm-hmm. and we had strategies in place if he was you know if he rapidly lost three percent or if he gradually lost it or five percent what would we what how would we react to that so we I, I you know as a team we put a lot of thought i mean i, I when mark asked me to do that challenge it was almost a year out And from that point, you know, I'd started to think about it and uh, we started to logistically think, well, what's possible and what's not possible around Britain? You know, we got a few things wrong and we're able to tone in on that. So I I think it just goes to establish that actually, if you just put a plan in place and we have, you know, monitoring, simple monitoring tools in place um, that can work. But it was very much based on the psychology, you know, it wasn't just fuel for Mark, food was psychology, like he liked his food and he liked certain foods at certain times and all those foods that we try to include. Um, So, you know, the fact that he sort of didn't really lose any weight, um, you know, was quite remarkable really. Um, And I I actually thought he would lose up to maybe 5% of his body weight um, at least um, because I thought he would get taste fatigue, I thought he'd start to struggle and he did. Um, But I think we had enough drinking calories and various things that made consuming the calories, um, slightly easier for him. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the, the energy deficit for Mark was, yeah, it wasn't my concern as it is with athletes that I work on in marathon running or in elite settings. Um, it just, it just seemed there was more, there was bigger things to, to consider. Um, and that was, you know, how are we just going to get this food into him? And 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 what will be will be because Mark was not going to stop unless he physically fell off that bike.
1: Yeah, absolutely agree with that. You know, and I think we uh, we all know um, in terms of his psychology how strong he is um, in that department. But I think that's a really interesting concept, and probably one that people don't really think about is actually training to eat you know when you are doing these bigger events it's really important that you you have a nutritional strategy but not only have a nutritional strategy but train it yes make sure that you're training it in your training and, and getting the best out of that
3: and you'll know that was difficult with mark because he, he he didn't want to eat every 90 minutes and all his training wise were like no you're eating you need to get you got used to this um and you know it. you know we we have you know, there are some conversations that, you know, no, no, this is part of it. This is, you do need to start this training. You need to start it now getting used to eating stuff on the bike and finding out what's appealing to you and what's not appealing to you. So you're, you were so right. I mean, his, that whole challenge started far from just getting on the bike and starting in Paris. Um, You know, we, he had been sort of working and training his gut um, to be able to take on that amount of food. Excellent.
1: And I guess I'm going to come back to the paper now and sort of tie in one of the key findings from the paper that talked about um, the low energy availability group amongst the cyclists. And what they found in that was that um, the cyclists who were more prone to low energy availability um, actually demonstrated a lack of previous history of load bearing um, training in their younger years. And what they saw from this was that the um, bone mineral density within their spine was actually affected by this, which is actually, I think, quite alarming because it's maybe something that we don't necessarily pay an awful lot of attention to when we are trying out some of these fads. You know, when we're doing maybe a fasted ride in order to be able to reduce a little bit body weight because we want to try and adapt our power-to-weight ratio because, you know, we, we sit and we watch a Tour de France and we know that... The guys with the lowest um, power to weight ratios are the quickest guys to go up the hill. And, you know, we want to really try and um, mimic that within our own training. Um, And it was certainly something that um, in terms of the training when I was prescribing that for Mark for this challenge, that I was really keen that we kept um, a a load-bearing exercise within his training plan. But just in the more generic setting, I certainly feel with a lot of cyclists that I've worked with in the past, they spend all of their hours on a bike and they aren't necessarily thinking about um, the importance of getting some load bearing into their daily routines. And I was just wondering in terms of the work that you've done, do you see similar things um, or, um, you know, do you see it across different sports?
3: Um, yes. Um, so we have, I mean, in, in, in certain institute settings, they will have criteria where if um, there's questions to fill out and if they fall below a certain BMI, you know, of, of say 18.5 and they're in certain at risk sports that they might get a dextra scan as just part of um, to test the bone mineral density. And that's just an informed an enhanced form of an X-ray that can very accurately detect where the bone mineral density is. So there's those that are in lean sports. But my, my concern is, is the sports that aren't, you know, the athletes aren't supported with uh, really a group of coaches or very knowledgeable coaches to make sure um, that they do, um, look after the bone health of the athlete so you'll see in runners a lot of the the lumber spine will be low in distance runners if they're exceptionally lean or again they're menorrheic so they've got part of this low energy availability so they think oh but they're weight bearing they're running um, but the low energy availability because you when you have if you don't take enough energy and what happens is your body starts to slow down it, it will allow you to train to, to for a certain point but at that at the cost of oh well i'll take more mineral density um and i'll slow your metabolic rate and i'll as it'll start impacting your bloods and your cardiovascular health um so you'll be able to train for quite a long time before you notice a performance decrease yet and all your health has been suffering um and we and cyclists are you know i i I think and and i think i'm saying this more from a um A mum with kids that have gone to bike races. And I see elitism starting so young now. So those are just do cycling from quite a young age. And they're not doing any weight bearing. You know, they've left primary school. They're not running around and they're not doing PE anymore. Um, And all they do is ride. They just think more miles is better because that's what they read in the magazines. And And, you know, when you think... Leslie, I mean, they don't peak until you know in endurance sports till the maybe late twenties, early thirties. You know, why do they need to be doing that? Why can't they be doing lungs, some load bearing exercises? Because they are they are probably putting their bone health at risk. Because that added lesson years is so important to lay down your peak bone mass. So yeah, I do think there's a problem. But I think there's a problem in those that come into they're they're not in a program that sees that that's important, or they're they're. Elite and they're starting at a very young age and they're just being overlooked by maybe parents or you know the local coach. And uh yeah, so I I I think it, I definitely think it's a problem. Um and you know, when it gets so low, it's not reversible for some for, for some people when it's it's discovered quite early on, they can do quite a lot to kind of um move your bone density up, but that's not always the case.
1: Okay, so Thanks, Ruth. That's been an absolutely great insight into both your world of work and and your world of sport and how all of these things impact on the athletes that we work with. And hopefully if you're an athlete or a coach or maybe um, a fellow nutritionist or sports physiologist, you'll have got some useful information out of the session that we, we were talking today. So I'd just like to thank you, Ruth, for your time today. I know it's always precious. Um, you're a very busy lady and it's difficult to get hold of you. So thank you very much for that. Well, thanks and for I having think me. I'd just like to um, leave with just a little bit of a closing remark. So therefore, I think in order to be able to round this up, Um, it would appear that we can actually put quite a lot of stress on our bodies as we're exercising and as we're um, going through all of these training regimes. And it's really important that maybe sometimes we take a step back and we don't just pick up and follow the latest trend that's in a magazine um, or what we see on Twitter or even what we see our heroes doing um, on the stage of sports. Because actually that might not impact our own body the same way. It might have longer implications for our health in later life. And it's really important that we're starting to think about what works for us, what individually is going to make us better and not just following the, the sort of train that everyone else is jumping on at that time. So I'd like to thank you for listening. And I'd just like to, for one last time, open the floor to Ruth and just see if she has any closing remarks for today. Thank you.
3: Well, I think I've probably talked enough, but I, I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, there needs to be a lot more education in relative energy deficit in sport. Um, and really just to yeah not conform to other people's goals. Work to your own goals and make sure those goals are health and performance related, not just performance
1: Perfect. So I think we're both saying and we're going to leave today by saying train smart. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. Thanks very much, Ruth.
3: Okay, thanks, Les. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Bye.
0: Many thanks for listening to this episode of uh, Cycling Science uh, podcast. Um, If you'd like to find out more about us or get in contact with us, please visit our website, which is uh, cycling-science.com you can send us a a message there on our contacts uh, page um, or send us an email at podcast at cycling-science.com and we also have a a Facebook page so please do send us your questions or comments and uh, finally I'd just like to thank our supporters of this podcast that's the University of West Scotland and Edinburgh Napier University